Welcome, I'm John Lynch and I'm the host of The Discarded Compass, the podcast for the seasoned seeker. If this resonates, please subscribe to us for future episodes. So without further ado, sit back, relax and join me and my guest as we deep dive into the mystery of spiritual enlightenment. Welcome again to another episode of The Discarded Compass and my name is John Lynch and I'll be hosting the show tonight and before we start I just want to thank everybody for your kind support and your your emails and uh, your messages and your involvement on YouTube. Much appreciated, keep it going and so we can keep going. Um, tonight we have Joan Tollefson. Uh Joan's kindly agreed to do the show with us tonight and Joan has a great amazing story, I was reading some of it there, it's uh it's it's not easy reading, but it's it's great to see you alive, basically. Joan, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. You're welcome, Joan. Um, you know your your story. I, I was reading some of it. You 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 had a tough time from the outset. Um, you were you were bought being born. Uh, uh, you you your challenges. Uh. And then your addictions. Can you tell us a bit about your background, what it was like growing up and the challenges that you met? Mm, sure. Um, well, of course, this is a story yeah. which abstracts a huge amount of infinite complexity into a coherent narrative. Um, but um, during the time that I was in my mother's uterus um, and... Um, an amniotic band wrapped around my right arm and amputated my right hand and right forearm. Um, so I was born without a right hand. And, um, and this was back, I was, you know, born in the late forties. So this was disability was not viewed the same way then that it is now. And, um, especially for girls and uh, speaking of being a girl, I didn't ever really felt like I was a girl. I wanted to be a boy. So I, uh, I now consider myself gender queer, but you know, I had, I definitely didn't fit into, and of course, back then in the fifties, um, gender roles were much more heavily defined. And, um, and then, you know, I came out, um, in college as a lesbian. Again, this was before Stonewall and the gay liberation movement. So that was, um, a big thing. And, um, and I got, I started drinking and doing a lot of drugs at that time. And, um, although I did a lot of drugs, including shooting heroin, I was never really addicted to drugs, but I was addicted to alcohol. Alcohol was kind of my, my, my thing. And I luckily, you know, I knew I nearly died from, you know, I, from drinking and all that, um, and led a very wild life. <clears throat> but um, luckily, I sobered up when I was 25. So um, the damage to my body was not as great as it might have been. And um, uh, I sobered up through a very unconventional approach, um, not the not the AA or the 12 step approach. And um, and initially after that, I got into um, politics, various forms of um the women's movement, the gay liberation movement, the Central America Solidarity Movement, the anti-imperialist left. Um, I was just in a wide variety of political um, movements. And then I found my way eventually to the Zen Center, the San Francisco Zen Center, and then the Berkeley Zen Center. And then eventually I worked with Joko Beck, Charlotte Joko Beck. Um, and then eventually I... Um, I met Tony Packer, who I considered to be my main teacher, although I've been with many other teachers. But um, and Tony was a was a Zen teacher who had left the um, she was supposed to take over the Rochester Zen Center, but she left because she decided that she couldn't really be part of the hierarchy and the and the dogma and the traditional aspects of Zen. And so she founded along with her friends, as she called us, not she never used the word students. But um, Tony and her friends founded the Springwater, what became the Springwater Center, which is where I ended up being on staff for five years and living there in northwestern New York, um, where they still had silent retreats and silent sittings. But uh, the schedule was optional. We had armchairs you could sit in as well as meditation cushions. 
um, it was very open and undogmatic and Tony stressed that anything she said could be questioned. And so it was very unauthoritarian and open. And from there I got into, um, I read Nisargadatta. I spent time with Jean Klein and a bunch of Advaita Satsang teachers, including Gangaji was a major teacher, uh, but also Francis Lucille and um, Isaac Shapiro. I went to a whole bunch of satsangs at that point. And then I encountered the radical non-duality, as I call it. Um, I met, uh, went on a little retreat with Tony Parsons. Um, that was during the week of 9-11. Um, and um, that had a big impact on me, being with Tony Parsons. And so I had the two Tonys in my life, the Tony Packer and the Tony Parsons. <laughs> and, um, and, um, and I was also by then holding meetings. Um, and I had written my first book while I was on staff at Springwater. Um, and since then I've written, well, altogether I've written five books and, um, and uh, now I live in Oregon in Southern Oregon after many years in the Bay area and some years back in Chicago with my mother. And, um, and, um, and I had a very serious stage three cancer about four years ago um, that um, has, um, which I've been cancer free now for four years, but, but anyway, that um, has left me with a few um, additional quote unquote challenges. (laughs) So that's my, my story in a nutshell, but you know, I'm, I've, I feel like I've had a very blessed life. I mean, you know, I had wonderful parents and um, grew up in a beautiful place. And um, um, so overall, I've had an enormously lucky and blessed life, really. John, that, that's, that's quite a humbling, uh, like a lucky life people would say you you had some of the hardest cards dealt. Um, Well, you know, it, it, and it, well, first of all, I mean, a lot of things in my life, you know, I mean, I was, um, we had enough money that there was always food on the table. We never, you know, my college education was paid for, Um, you know, I've never, gone hungry, um, even though I was panhandling for a while as a drunk, but I could always sort of fall back on my parents, you know, otherwise I probably would have been in jail. So, you know, and I'm white, I'm not, you know, (laughs) I'm not, um, so I'm privileged in many ways and, and lucky in many ways. And even the things that were difficult, um, I see them as blessings because they've been the source of a lot of my, my deepest wisdom and insight and, um, and I think that's true for many people. If we look back on our lives, that the things that seemed difficult or were difficult are often the things that really woke us up in some way and were give us depth that we wouldn't otherwise have. And that kind of goes with the the saying that people seeking, the, the, you know, religion is for people who don't want to go to hell and spirituality is for people who've been there. It's a bit like that, isn't it? Mm. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I like that saying. Um, I'm just wondering, there must've been some sort of heavy conditioning patterns, beliefs, structures, you mentioned beliefs and and freedom from belief is is a lot of your teaching, I I think. Uh, And that actually, I I totally agree with that. Belief can be quite dangerous. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, there must have been some sort of divine intervention in some way. You mentioned Buddhism, Zen Buddhism. Was there a moment of something usually happens where it's like, you know, this is this is against my beliefs. This is something new. Yet there's something familiar. Mm. Well, you know, my parents were atheist agnostics. So I wasn't raised in a religion, Um, but I had a really, I would say, a spiritual sense from really early. I mean, I had a sense of the sort of wonder of life and the beauty of life. And I I had a sense of the depth of whatever was going on here. I mean, I just 
I had what I would call a spiritual sensibility. And actually, my parents did, too, even though they weren't into organized religion and didn't talk about it that way. Um, But my mother would say things like God is love, you know, and my father would say there is no God. Um, But um, but and he talked about determinism. He was a determinist. So he told me there was no free will, no choice. And it made total sense to me. So I got that message very early on. Um, But I was never indoctrinated with with um, religious beliefs. I got very interested in religion as a young person. So from probably. I don't know, early on, I was reading books about religion and my parents would take me to, you know, to different temples and churches and wherever I wanted to go. And I was really drawn to Buddhism um, for some reason when I read about it. But this was, you know, the 50s and the early 60s. I didn't know any Buddhists. I didn't think there were any in in my part of the world. So um, um, but then when I got to college, I Alan Watts was was coming out with his books at that point. So I I read Alan Watts and I took a course on Vedanta and Zen and there was a little Zen group at the college that I started sitting Zen meditation. And, um, but then I went, I veered off into alcohol, drugs, and then politics. So I took kind of a detour for a while, but, but I would say the interest in spirituality, religion, whatever was there in me, religion in the good sense, not (laughs) in the dogmatic sense was there in me from very, very early on. It was just, I, I kind of felt like even as a child, this is going to be my vocation. This is the center of my life. And you mentioned Advaita. Like when, if anyone meets Advaita, some people get a, an allergic reaction to the message because it's so radical um, and it's it's unforgiving. Um, when you met that message, what happened? Um, Non-duality Advaita. Well, first of all, it wasn't really... I mean, I don't think there's differences in, in expression in Zen and then Tony Packer and Advaita, but there's a great deal of similarity, really. Um, and um, so it wasn't, then um, even Christianity, mystical Christianity. And so, I mean, so I didn't feel like I was encountering something, you know, completely different and new. Um, I mean, Tony Packer, would read from the Sargadatta at the end of her retreats. I mean, actually I was the one that turned around into Sargadatta, but what, once she started reading, I am that she would read from it at the end of her retreats, along with reading from Krishnamurti and um, Rilke and various other people on the last day. But anyway, um, so, and, and I found Sargadatta because somebody who was a guest at Springwater was reading. I am that night, you know, gave me the book and I started reading it and I was just, wow, this is amazing. And then, and then um, that same person told me about Jean Klein and made me promise that when I was back in California, um, I would go see Jean Klein. And, and I didn't really want to the night that he was there. I was like, oh, but I promised. So I will. So I went and, and then I was just deeply. I mean, it was like, wow, <laughs> when I heard Jean and I just went back again and again and went on some retreats with him and everything. So that was really kind of the introduction to Advaita. And then Gangaji was just starting her teaching career at that time. And somebody gave me um, a tape of Gangaji. It was probably one of her very first satsangs. And it's like, um, and it was so different from Zen and Springwater. I mean, it was like, in fact, it, uh, there was one tape where she was in India giving satsang. And there were like a rock band going by and, you know, monkeys and and all kinds of chaos in the background. You know, I was used to these very silent retreats. And, and here was this whole thing happening in the middle of total chaos. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. And, and um, so, um, so I got involved with her. And um, yeah, so it, it, I think it just, it was all kind of a, an unfolding stream you know from zen tony packer advaita and of course there's all these different flavors of advaita i mean all the different advaita teachers i was with have a different flavor and then the sort of what i call the radical non-dualists like tony parsons they have a different flavor you know so and but to me it's kind of like there's a different emphasis like everybody's kind of emphasizing a different facet of this reality or or talking about it in a sort of different way, formulating it in a sort of different way. But, but in some way, 
I feel like it's all pointing to in some way kind of seeing through or waking up from the, from the unnecessary suffering that comes from our false beliefs and ideas and thoughts and discovering the aliveness or the spaciousness or the okayness or the isness or um, the simplicity of just this, you know, and, and, and people language that in different ways and, and emphasize different aspects of it. But, but it kind of feels like it's to me, I don't feel, I don't feel a big contradiction between all these things that sound can sound very different. And that's the crux of the matter. How do you use the mind to drop the mind? Tell us. Well, I don't know that you use, I mean, first of all, the word mind gets people mean different things by that. So some people mean by that thinking, thinking, um, and some people mean by the mind, they mean consciousness kind of. So, um, well, what I'm is the mind? I mean, we all talk that we have a mind. We all say that we have a mind. So maybe just start there. What is the mind to you, Joan? Or the idea? Of um, well, I don't know. I might use the word in different ways in different sense. It's a word I'm careful with just because people do mean such different things mm. by it. Um, and that's part of how we get mixed up is that we have all these words like awareness and the mind and consciousness. And and they're they're not as clear cut as words like table and chair. <laughs> in terms of what they're referring to. So, so people can use them a little differently, but anyway, um, how do we wake up from the mind? Well, I don't know that we wake up with the mind from the mind. Um, feels to me like, like, um, the main thing is, is, uh, seeing what the, what the, seeing what the thinking mind is doing. Um, which I would say is awareness, seeing awareness sheds light on everything awareness sees reveals what the thinking mind is doing so we begin to see the ways that we create unnecessary suffering in the ways that we're thinking about things and it's not just thought of course it's also like for example with physical pain i noticed in zen when we had to sit through a lot of pain that when i was resisting it when I was tightening the body against it. And when I was, when there were thoughts like, I can't stand this. When is the bell going to ring? This is horrible. It's going to kill me. It would get worse and worse and worse and seem unbearable. And when I could let go of all that and kind of open and relax the body and go right into the pain with awareness, with attention, you know, and just really feel it as pure sensation, it would become interesting and would kind of go away and come back and would no longer be overwhelming. Um, so it's, it's kind of, it's not just thinking, it's also somatic in some way, but it's, it's all has to do with awareness, I would say, in the sense of seeing all that and feeling all that and becoming sensitive to all that. Um, and at the same time, kind of, um, instead of thinking about what's going on here, it's more about I like to say coming to our senses, you know, and really seeing what's going on here. So, so in, you know, paying attention to our direct experiencing rather than to our ideas about this. And when we pay attention to our direct experiencing, we notice that it's not the way we think it is. Um, And so that to me is sort of a meditative exploration, a process of meditative exploration that in, and, and, um, and, you know, we begin to notice things like that everything is appearing in this consciousness, whatever you want to call it. Everything is appearing in this, in, in me in a way, instead of me, I'm appearing in, in this field that I am, you know. And then we start to notice that there's no boundary between the field and, and, and the awareness of the field. And it's one whole happening. And, and, and you know, we hear the radical pointers that, there's no way not to be this. There's just this. And um, there's nobody, the one who thinks they're not there yet is just a, a thought, an image. And so, you know, there's different kind of pointers and, and teachings or whatever you want to call them, messages along the way that you get that all reveal some aspect of this or help help you to see through some piece of the delusion um 
And, um, and so I think it's all kind of in one way or another, that's kind of what it's all about. Although some people wouldn't describe it that way, I'm sure. Yeah. And Tony Parsons springs to mind because Tony's all about, there's just this happening for no one. You yeah. Know, that sort well, of a message. And it's like, well, I know there's just this, there's always been this life you like, you know, but it is a big difference between this for an, this that you can't put words on that it's even the, the mind or the thinking process, the belief structure, even if you give it your nothing, it'll come up with a mental nothing won't it? I mean, it, the mind, the thinking process is quite trippy, quite baffling, <laughs> cunning and baffling, isn't it, John? I mean, yeah. it, it'll always have a position. Even a, a non-position is a position. Um, yeah, it, that's what it does. I mean, which is functional in everyday life. I mean, you know, you've got to know where you live and <laughs> which mouth to put the food in and all that. So it's, you know, it's helpful on that survival level, but it gets us into a lot of trouble when it carries over into aspects of life where it doesn't really work very well. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and when it's trying to sort out the nature of reality, it definitely doesn't work very well (laughs) because, you know, as you're saying, we can sort of see through some of our more conventional beliefs and then we can pick up subtle new beliefs, um, and we, the mind can kind of turn anything into a new formula, mm. including, you know, there's just this, <laughs> um, you know, because the words aren't it. I mean, what's being pointed to there, there's just this is like, there's just this, this right now, right here, just this, you know. And um, but the mind is like, well, what what is being what is what does she mean? <laughs> uh, does she mean this or does she mean that or, you know, and and and. <laughs> And immediately, as soon as the, the thinking mind is doing that, it's creating this kind of sense that there's me here who lacks something and has to get something and is trying to figure this out. And if only I can figure out what just this is, then I'll be okay. And we're you know? supposed to be clever, like. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and it, of course, is, that, that, it, that completely misses the point, you it, know, but it, that's what that's what the thinking mind does until it doesn't, you know, and you can't. Until kind of it make doesn't. That. How is yeah. that loop seen through? For me, it's a loop. Think, it's a loop. For me, it was a, it, it's a loop, I think. Um, is it a moment of grace, of of inevitability, or of a pre, predestination? Why is it? Well, what again, is it? you know, any expect we can put it in. <clears throat> anything we say in an answer to that is another idea, you know, it's this or it's that. And I think clearly different people have different experiences. I mean, some people seem to have these very sudden dramatic line in the sand kind of awakening moments like Eckhart Tolle or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and other people like myself, it's been a much more gradual. Um, I mean, you could say it's both gradual and right now, <laughs> I mean, you can't, it's, it's both, but I mean, it's been gradual in the sense that there's no, I can't pinpoint any moment when I suddenly, you know, had this enormous breakthrough and, and, you know, like a line in the sand where my life was one way before and totally different forever after. Um, but, um, yeah. So, and I think, I think a lot of these things, you know, you just, well, I often give the example of, um, the first time I did an all day sitting at the San Francisco Zen center, I mean, we were just sitting there in silence all day. And when you just sit there with nothing to do, but just sit there, you start to notice what's going on. And one of the things that I noticed, and it was one of the light bulb moments in my life. One of the things I noticed was that every thought I was having was about the future. You know, I was thinking about where, when I could go to my next one day sitting and, where I would park the car the next day at work and what I was going to do on the break that was coming up. And, you know, and I had met, I'm sure I'd been doing that for years, but without knowing it, without seeing it, without being aware of it, you know, it had just been sort of happening in the background. And all of a sudden it was like the light turned on and I saw it, I saw this pattern and it didn't end then forever after, but from that moment on, I, I would see it, you know, and sometimes I would see it after I was far into it 
And sometimes I would catch it right at the beginning, but I would, I was seeing it more and more. And I started being, seeing how alluring it was and seeing how there was suffering in it and, and just seeing it. And I couldn't like, you can't just decide, well, okay, this is not good. I'll just never do this again. I mean, that doesn't work. And it's just another thought about the future. Um, so it was just seeing it. And then eventually it, it seemed to dissolve, not in a big flash moment, but just at some point I noticed I wasn't really doing that anymore. Um, and, you know, similarly, it was when I did my first retreat with Tony Packer and she points a lot to how, you know, invites people to look for this me that we think is making our decisions and authoring our thoughts, you know, just sort of look for it, see if you can find it, what is it? And, um, and it was on that retreat, again, another light bulb moment where, you know, I really got that, um, oh, there is no me. It's just thoughts and, and mental images and, and, you know, memories. And, um, but it wasn't like, okay, from that moment on, there was never any sense of me again, or, you know, I never again had any sort of, you know, me centered things going on, like seeking or being defensive or whatever it might be. Um, but from then on, it was, it, I think it would, it was seen again in a new way. Like I was, I, I would catch it in a different way. Like noticing, Oh, I'm being really defensive right now. What am I defending? Cause Tony was always saying, you know, if you're defensive, what are you defending? You know, what yeah. is it? Find it. What are you defending? And, and um, it was very much a process of investigation with her and looking into all these things. She didn't like say, she used a lot of questions instead of here's the answer. It was like, you know, look and see what is this, you know? And so it was just seen more and more clearly that there really isn't, there really isn't a separate solid persisting me here. Um, but it can still seem like there is sometimes, you know, there can still be a, if I feel defensive or hurt or something, well, you know, there's a sense of me being threatened or something that rises up. So, and to me, that's not a problem. Um, you know, there was a point where that was a problem. You know, it felt like, and this is, I think, common on the spiritual path that you feel like you see that. And then it's like, oh, I have to get rid of that. That's the whole idea here is, is to, you know, vanquish the ego and, and have no sense of self. And, um, but now I just see that this is, this is just one more thing that's going on in the play, in the movie of Waking Life. It's just one more. And, and yeah, there's an interest in, in seeing it, like, because, you know, I'd rather not operate out of defensiveness or, or other egoic things. Yeah. Um, but I, but it's not like, I feel like it's, it's a personal problem that, that needs to be solved or something you know that that it's unenlightened oh i keep getting this message on my screen about sign into podcasts hold on i have to get rid of it <laughs> it's a new apple nightmare uh, yeah oh, it keeps coming up let me see they're like thoughts yeah oh it's just going to be here let me try to move the thing maybe i can do that there i go i thought i got rid of it last night but i guess i didn't anyway <laughs> Another interesting development in the movie of Waking Life. <laughs> it's a, it's a bit like um, kind of reminding me that the the freedom is sort of embracing or, or trying to get enlightenment is sort of like a hopeless pursuit, but it has to be an endeavour that has to be tried. Mm. And then there's freedom in that hopelessness, you know. Um seems like for, that's just what goes on here anyway um but um there's no way to get this is there it's a it, it, you know there's no well, there's no way to get anything out of this there's a booby prize enlightenment is the booby prize if there is one well it's like you know what we're trying to get in a sense is just being being at peace with what is being feeling okay feeling at peace with what is really somehow. And it's like what we're seeking is already here. It's, you know, this is never absent. 
aware, this aware presence is always here. Um, so it seems to me that, that it's really about seeing through what seems to be in the way, seeing through the, the thought story mirage of separation and encapsulation and um, all of that. And, and I think for most of us, that doesn't happen in one big dramatic flash. It, it happens, you know, gradually and maybe never permanently, you know, for all time. <laughs> but it, 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 so it's really, to me, it's about now, right now, which is all there ever really is. And, and, you know, even it's, and then you sort of begin to realize that even the things that seem to be obstructions are themselves, they're not really obstructions. They're not really problems. They too are just this isness, this presence doing what it does. So, and that, I think that's the beauty of these kind of radical messages like Tony Parsons and his unofficial lineage, um, you know, that, that it's kind of like um, seeing through the whole, that whole thought, feeling sense that something has to happen, that I'm not okay, that something needs, I need to get something. This isn't it, you know, just seeing through that and, and recognizing that nothing can really, nothing is really in the way. Um, you know, um, the mind will, the thinking mind will endlessly say that, you know, the Apple podcast pop-up is in the way of this interview (laughs) and, you know, and my defensiveness is in the way of my enlightenment and blah, 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 you know, and, and, um, but you you see that that's all just a story. That's all just part of the movie. And, um, and, and it just passes, you know, it's just gone in a moment. It's like these thoughts, like I shouldn't have done that. You know, when you have a thought, like you can, like, I think no self is so ordinary. It's like on any ordinary day, there's just, we're just doing what we're doing, driving the car or whatever. And there's no self there until we get a thought, like, am I enlightened yet? (laughs) Or, you know, and all of a sudden there seems to be me and enlightenment and, you know, it just, and, but the thought is just a little blip of energy, really. It's not, there's, it's really, what is a thought? I mean, it's just, there's nothing to it. It's just sort of, it's there and it's gone. And it's quite well, interesting. Of course, we have this way of holding on to thoughts and, you know, really yeah. getting involved in them. Even if, <laughs> even if we look at the, the actual structure of a thought, we can't find what the structure is. We can't yeah. find how it was manufactured. We can't yeah. find where it came from. We can, we can think various things about concepts and ideas about it but right there right then we can't decipher anything about it can we really yeah no i mean it's it is it's just this kind of weird little mental that goes through you know and it's and we think that we're authoring our thoughts that we're the thinker of our thoughts but when you look for the thinker you can't find anything and when you just pay attention you just see that these thoughts are just popping up. Like you don't know what your next thought is going to be. And they're just like someone, one Zen teacher years ago, compared, you probably don't even compare them to the bubble. Lawrence, there used to be this Lawrence Welk show on TV and, and these bubbles would come out. They're like the bubbles coming out of the Lawrence Welk, which nobody will know that reference is way too old to take that one back. It's, uh, yeah, it, yeah, there are so many, um, there are so many failures in the idea of the person because obviously there isn't really, you know, uh, it's just a supposition, um, yet it causes a lot of suffering. Well, I think, you know, I think. Clearly, there's something here that we call Joan and something we call John. Yeah. I mean, well, so reference to the body, kind of, you know. Yeah. I mean, I find some of it, you know, when certain people just keep saying over and over, there's no person, there's no person, there's no person, I sort of feel like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> because, you know, 
there is something that we call Joan and something we call John. But the more just in the same way that there's something we call Chicago and something we call London and something we call San Francisco. But when you really start to look at any of those things closely, you can't really pin down what they are. I mean, you can't deny that there's something we call San Francisco and that it has a unique flavor and that's different from Chicago, but you can't really get hold of what it is either. I mean, you know, what is it? And, um, and it's the same with a person. I mean, I'm not about identification with the body, Joan, um, because what can be done about that? It seems so automatic and we're so used to, this is my body. Um, how, how can that be seen through? Well, I mean, there's a certain reality to it. Like, um, you know, there is, um, you know, I, I don't particularly resonate with the I am not the body pointer. I, I like to say I am not only the body. I am not encapsulated inside the body. <clears throat> there's no me inside the body. But, but you know, mm. um, obviously, you know, if, if, um, if you stab me with a knife, there's going to be pain here (laughs) you know this body feels the pain of this there's a consciousness that is in some way um connected to or associated with this body that i think is part of life you know that that um that we have a functional sense of boundaries you know it's not okay for anyone just walk up to me on the street and start groping me all over or something you know um we have a functional sense of boundaries and we have a you know um so, so some identification with the body is, is a functional part of being alive. I think the problem comes when we think I am only the body. That's what I am. I am this little mm-hmm. me inside the body and yeah. I am encapsulated in here and I'm separate from everything else. That's the problem. And, you know, even the body, you know, as I was talking about, how we we can't deny the existence of John and Joan and San Francisco and Chicago when we really explore what the body is it's nothing solid it's 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 nothing you can really get hold of um and so, scientists say this that, like, yeah you know, scientists I mean, say this and you know, meditators I, also yeah if you just yeah. close your eyes and feel into the body you yeah. know it, there's nothing you can't even find parts of it it's just vibrations and yeah. tinglings and I mean, and, we, yeah, we, course, we, we walk yeah. around thinking, you know, this is a table, this is a chair. We give everything labels. Okay, that's fine. But in the background, somewhere in CERN, you got the greatest minds in the world haven't found how all this happens. They have not found the secret to this. Yeah. Now, yeah. people, there's a big, there's a big uh, sort of a, there's a gap between Joe Soap thinking, yeah, your man on this non-dual expedition, thinking he's nobody, he's a bit cracked. But people forget that the greatest minds in the world haven't cracked the secret of life. And a lot of them actually, I don't know, is it fact? It probably is that 99% of everything is 99.999% is empty space. Yeah, empty space, yeah. And and dark matter and all these things that, you know, um, yeah. And, and, um, and, you know, the table, I mean, scientifically, they know that the table isn't really solid. It feels solid because of, you know, magnetic poles or something like that. Um, it's, it's an illusion kind of, I mean, science knows that, that what we're seeing is not some external reality, that this is some sort of creation that, that consciousness cooks up. Um, and, um, so, yeah, I mean, of course, just reading that in a physics book or something or hearing that from a scientific perspective doesn't necessarily change our life. Um, you know, it's so which is where I think spiritual. Um, I don't really like the word practice because it sounds too methodical, but that's where I think, you know, spirituality or non-duality in whatever form, whether it's meditation or going to, you know, Tony Parsons talks, (laughs) Um, but some kind of actual sort of direct um, seeing is um, important, you know, because, and you can really discover this by, by just 
being present and, and seeing that, um, that nothing is solid in the way that you think it is, that the body isn't solid and that you can't find the little me who's supposedly in there. And, um, that when you look deeply into what you mean by me, it's really just this aware presence, this beingness, this, this, you can't really find anything else. Effortless. This isn't it. It's effortless. Yeah. And it's all just happening. Even, even, apparent effort, apparent um, willful effort, apparent planned action, all of that is also just happening, you know, in the sense that what what moves us to make a plan of some kind and, and how does that planning unfold? All of that is just happening spontaneously, really, by itself. And you can discover that by by really watching as all of these things happen. And seeing that. And it's interesting, the spontaneity of the whole thing. Um, I was listening to someone else, like, uh, what was it, the other night? Um, or Carl Renz, I, I think, he had quite an interesting take on the whole thing, which I, I can't really understand too well. But it was a bit like that presence, that power, um, dreamt all this up. Mm-hmm. And that power itself can't control anything either. That is right. a scary thought. To I think. love that about Carl. I, I really love Carl. Renz. He's, and, he's and, great. Um, I really, I yeah, really he, enjoy him, Joan. Yeah, he's, he's, he's great. He's really great. And you got to yeah. be boiled and, in oil know, to listen to him. To, you know, I mean, he's not for the spiritual bypass or no at all. Like he's for. The, yeah. <laughs> no, he's he's definitely um, well because he you know he he kind of aff- he offends a lot of people and you know he just kind of. As he says, he's a rug puller. You know, he pulls the rug out from under everything. Yeah. And anything you try to, you know, make into something, he like whoosh, get rid of that. You know, and dog shooter. Uh, yeah, but he's, um, but yeah, he talks about how you know the almighty self or what. How this is my wording. It might not be his exactly, but the gist of it being something like. The I think he's a great self. memory. He'd probably have you for that because he's got a great memory about what he hasn't said. Uh, well something about the you know the almighty self um is totally helpless it just keeps you know stepping in the shit again and again and again can't help itself you know and and um and i love that that that, that is that is some like well you know we talk we sorry for but we talk about freedom i want to be free you know hold on a minute folks this is this is like this is dangerous stuff. <laughs> I only get a sense of it, you know, from a sense of it only. Um, but that absolute freedom is terrifying to the person. It has to be a death because there's no hanging on in, in there, is there? Like, No, although, although paradoxically, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't negate um, the fact that we may be moved by life itself to do various things. Like if you're experiencing severe depression, you may be moved to, uh, you know, see a therapist or take a medication or, um, whatever, you know, or if you're dying of alcohol abuse, you may be moved to see a therapist or go into a recovery program, you know, it, and it, that all is included. I mean, that's like also just happening. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, it's, easy to sort of misinterpret these, these radical non-dual messages as meaning that you shouldn't be doing anything like that because, you know, there's no you to do it and and, um, there's no choice, but, but that leaves you out of the picture in some way, you know, because it's like everything that like deciding to have this um, conversation with each other. You know, it appears to be a decision you made and I agreed to, but if you really watch, it it, it all just happened spontaneously, how you noticed me and how you decided you had the urge. Oh, I think I'll, you know, and why I responded as I did, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's like, but it's not like, well, we shouldn't talk to each other because there's no one to do that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can sort of, you know, like. So it's yeah. paradoxical. I mean, I think it's all very paradoxical. You can't really, you can't really get hold of it with any of these formulations, really. 
And isn't it just as well that you can't get hold of it? Because it wouldn't it be terrible if we did? What would we well, do with the, if we could capture enlightenment and we got a medal or what would it be? I've no idea what enlightenment would be anyway. Um, well, that that is what our, you know, thinking mind is always capturing things or trying to, <laughs> or thinking <laughs> it has. And, you know, we see the result of that. It's, it's you know, it's causes a lot of stress and conflict and, and, um, you know, as soon as you think I'm enlightened now, you're almost inevitably in for <laughs> <laughs> a serious disappointment. <laughs> you know, and, and having yeah, it's uh, it's quite funny. It's like really okay. Um, what's it like? <laughs> How's it going for you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, we have all these ideas about enlightened people. It, and it's crazy because the whole, you know, so-called enlightenment, part of it is seeing that there isn't any solid, persisting, continuous person anyway. So, or any solid, persisting state of mind either. I mean, we could say that here now is always here or this Whatever this all is, it's always here. But any kind of experiential state of consciousness, any experience is not permanent. And so um, the whole notion of there being an enlightened person in the sense that that's often spoken of is like some person who's always, always completely without self, completely open and spacious, totally mm. kind and generous, yeah, yeah, yeah. never has a moment of feeling defensive or insulted or hurt or or angry or abandoned or anything like that, just totally, you know. Um, what are we talking about? I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> and then you know these people personally, and you can see that people have human emotions and um Maybe there's the rare, you know, who knows? I mean, I don't know. Maybe there are people who never have a bad moment, but but I haven't met them. <laughs> I'm not one of them anyway, that's for sure. I'm certainly not one of them. <laughs> um, um, listening to you talk there, it, you know, it seems like on the path, you know, people set out to get something, of course. Mm-hmm. But through all these teachings and the gurus as such and the teachers, it, there comes a time where it, it seems for me anyway, it just seems this way because uh, I see a lot of it that the teaching turns and it's like, oh, I'm not going to get anything here. I get it. Oh, OK. Um, this is about dropping ideas and there's nothing mm-hmm. to get. Where am I now? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really more about seeing through the false. The false, yeah. Seeing through delusion. And in my view, it's not seeing through it once and for all, but seeing through it now, whenever it shows up, you know, just seeing through the falls and, and, and recognizing that what is, at least in terms of its experiential expression, <laughs> um, is going to be ever changing. It's, it's not going to ever be endlessly sunny days with no, no difficult weather. That's just not the way it works. <laughs> yeah. And like the life force is here in this body. Yet there's a thought. I might not finish this interview. <laughs> uh, you know, the body could drop during the interview too. You could. Yeah. You know, I mean, we, we really don't know. Um, that would talk, be, that would be, that would be quite an interview if, <laughs> If you were the guest yeah, actually yeah. died during the interview. Well, especially if, if I was laughing. I'd like to go laughing, actually. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, that's the end. <laughs> that would be a really good one. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, who's going to edit my... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and if it really happened now, that would be even worse. <laughs> yeah yeah you know there's a sense of that of you know we don't know the time and getting back to carl actually carl wins he reckons you know there's a predetermined time you know there's there's a time and that's it 
the body will go. There's a second in so supposed time where our time is up as such. And nobody knows when that is our final breath, you know. I'm not being morbid here. I'm just trying to... Um, it's part and parcel. Actually, you know, Joan, that's part of it too. It's, it's like you can't talk about death, can you? You know? No, well, my last book was called Death, The End of Self-Improvement. The, the, sorry, the, what was that? My last book was called Death, yeah. The End of Self-Improvement. The End of Self-Improvement. Okay, that's it. That's the final yeah. teaching. Yeah, <laughs> and and death, yeah, I mean, yeah, we we don't talk about death a lot. Or we talk about it more than we did when I was little, but um, mm. but it's still, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, but we certainly we don't know. We never know. I mean, I've known people who died suddenly. You know, they were just there. They were, and all of a sudden, massive heart attack, and two seconds later, they're gone, or yeah. a car accident, and one second later, they're gone. Um, and then other people die these very slow <laughs> uh, deaths with many, many losses beforehand. And, um, you know, there's no way to know what's going to happen. And on the level of the person, that's scary. You know, it's, it's, um, it's kind of like, I'm not speaking personally. I'm not afraid of death per se, but I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, if I think about it, I can get afraid of the things that might happen before death, you know, Um, but only if I think about it, which is, you know, one of the things that can be noticed that, um, that I don't really know what's going to happen and whatever happens, it's not going to be the way I thought it would be. Yeah. And when death, sorry, I've had a moment. All right. But it's like when it's coming, it's, uh, there's total acceptance because you can't do anything. Yeah. You know? Just, just yeah. what can you do? It's going to happen, and that's it. Um, you know, it's uh, yeah. What is life about? Uh, 